This programme was produced at and first aired on NPR, Manawatu People's Radio, with support from New Zealand On Air. Kapai Irarangi Tomotu, NPR. If you're a fan of NPR, listening to our podcasts and live stream has never been easier. Just search for accessmedia.nz on the App Store or Google Play and download the app with the Kiwi Fruit logo. Once you've got it, pick Manawatu People's Radio from the list of stations and go find your new favourite show. Listening to Manawatu People's Radio Kiara Parnell, welcome to Calling All Workers, the weekly radio show from Unions Manawatu. I'm John Shannon. You can contact us on Facebook at Union Central or by email at rebelshot, that's R E B E L S H O T, at connect, K I N E C T, dot com, co dot NZ. Calling All Workers, the purpose of the show is to raise the profile of unions, advertise union events, present stories and issues of interest to workers, and to build community support for union campaigns and activities. Welcome to 2022. Let's start the year reflecting on the success of the team of 5 million and keeping COVID largely at bay by vaccinating, masking and boostering. Well done to the government and the public servants for their leadership and planning, and well done to New Zealanders for doing the right thing in such overwhelming numbers. We start the year with a couple of items. Uh, first is a book review, very relevant to the current crisis in Eastern Europe, where NATO forces are confronting the Putin-Russian government over the Ukraine. There is nothing to like about the Ukrainian government, nor the Russian for that matter, uh, but the context is important from a Russian perspective. Remember, Russia has been invaded twice by European powers, France and Napoleon, Germany and Hitler, and in the last invasion, some 20 million citizens were killed, the largest sacrifice of any nation ever in history. So the issue is complex and not helped by the US government's arming and cheering on the corrupt Ukrainian nationalists who are direct descendants of the Ukrainian nationalists in the 1940s who welcomed the German army as liberators. The item we're going to talk about is a a book review. Uh, The books are The Soviet Myth of World War II, Patriotic Memory and the Russian Question in the USSR by Jonathan Brumsfeld and Nested Nationalism Making the and Unmaking the Nations in the Soviet Caucasus by Krista Goff. And they are reviewed by Sheila Fitzpatrick in the uh, London Review of Books. It's a puzzle to know how to think about the Soviet Union now that it is gone. Was it a Russian empire in disguise which broke apart when its oppressed colonies finally liberated themselves? Was it a benevolent, benevolent federation in which the Russian big brother generously subsidised its younger siblings and paid for their education? Or was it perhaps a multinational state in which the leaders of its constituent republics acquired so much freedom of action that in the end they could just walk out of the union and declare themselves presidents of sovereign nations? 
The first version is understandably the most popular. It appeals to the new independent states, providing an origin myth suitable for the building of a sense of nationhood. It also fits the Cold War view of the USSR held in the West, which treated the Soviet policy of friendship of nations as mere window dressing, masking imperialist aims. The second version is the one that makes sense to the Russians, though they have learned to keep this to themselves in the face of widespread scepticism. The third version is what an observer from Mars might see, or even, who knows, a future political scientist. We will probably have to wait until the dust settles to get a clearer picture overall. Meanwhile, the actual mechanisms of relationships between the ethnic groups called nationalities in the Soviet Union and between central and republican political leaderships remain, to a large extent, opaque. A plethora of different languages are involved, territorial issues are obscure, and places the personal names uh, places and personal names are complicated since different groups tend to have their own versions. Nothing is stable or certain, including how many Soviet nationalities there were, what they were called and what territories they were associated with. One thing is clear, however, not all Soviet nationalities were created equal. There was a hierarchy with titular nationalities, those with their own Soviet republic, on the top and smaller ones, the so-called Natsman, shorthand for national minorities, in a lesser position, more or less well-served depending not only on Moscow's attitude, but also on what on that of the republics in question. For most of its existence, the Soviet Union contained 15 republics, with Russians as the titular nationality in the Russian Federal Republic, Armenians in Armenia, Ukrainians in, Ukraine, Ukrainians in Ukraine, Uzbeks in Uzbekistan, and so on. Within these republics, some non-titular nationalities had their own territories, and some did not. The familiar approach to understanding Soviet nationality issues is via Russia, and this is the path Jonathan Brunstedt follows. His book examines the long-running ideological debates among Soviet theorists and propagandists of Russia's place in the Soviet Union. More particularly, it addresses the question of whether the Soviet victory in the Second World War should be seen as a great historical achievement of the Russians or of the whole multinational union. Its focus is on constructed memory, the different ways the war was later remembered in texts and monuments, and its political uses, a topic which once might have seemed, seemed esoteric. But now that we are faced with the puzzle of what the Soviet Union was and why and how it disintegrated, it acquires new relevance. The Soviet Union was explicitly a multinational state, not a Russian empire. So the correct Marxist-Leninist answer to Brumstead's question is that it was a multinational Soviet victory. But Western Sovietologists have always been sceptical about Soviet multinationalism for understandable reasons. After the collapse first of the Tsarist autocracy and then of the aptly named provisional government which succeeded it, an ethnically mixed group of Marxist revolutionaries, the Bolsheviks, seized power in October 1917, built a Russian, uh, sorry, a Red Army from scratch and against most people's expectations, won a civil war against the whites and set up what a they called the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. As it happened, the territory of the USSR closely matched that of Imperial Russia of the Tsar's empire. 
with Russians still the lingua franca and a major Russian city, its capital. It was natural to ask whether this was the same old empire in a new revolutionary packaging. The Bolsheviks certainly didn't see it that way, as Marxist internationalist enemies of capitalist imperialism, with as many Jews, Latvians and Georgians in the party leadership as Russians, their initial expectation was that the revolution in Russia was the harbinger of an international wave that would sweep away Europe's old order and make state boundaries meaningless. It was only after that wave of international revolutions failed, with the Soviet Union surviving to follow its own course, that it became necessary to work out what socialism in one multinational country might look like. The Bolsheviks were staunch opponents of nationalism, but their reading of recent European history told them that there was no way of avoiding it. They therefore discouraged Russian nationalism because of its historically conditioned imperialist tendencies and set out to preempt the rise of other kinds of story brilliantly told in Terry Martin's The Affirmative Action Empire, published in 2001. The biggest non-Russian nationalities or ethnic groups would have their own republics, using their own language alongside Russian in schools and, and administration, while smaller nationalities would have their own autonomous regions or smaller autonomous districts within republics. Where nationalist trends were already evident, as in the Ukraine, the Bolsheviks did their best to embed them in the Soviet as opposed to a bourgeois framework provided in this case by the Ukrainian Soviet Socialist Republic. Where they were more or less absent, as in Belarus, a republican territory was allocated anyway and efforts were made to foster a national consciousness. Where there was a messy situation in which proto-national claims were not yet clear, as in Azerbaijan, the most likely claimants were required to get their act together and agree on an origin story appropriate to a titular republican nationality. Russians had their own federal Soviet republic with lots of national autonomous regions within it for Tatars, Chechens, Bashkirs and others. For the minorities, the national expression was encouraged. For the Russians, it was under tight reign. But by the mid-1930s, in what the emigre sociologist Nicholas Timoshev called the Great Retreat, there were signs that the prohibitions on the celebration of Russian nationality was weakening. A more dramatic change came in May 1945, when for his toast at a victory banquet in the Kremlin, Stalin singled out the Russian people as the decisive force that ensured the historic victory. In the conventional Western telling of Soviet history, this marked an important ideological shift from a pretense of equality to the implicit recognition of Russian domination of the Union. According to Brunstead's researchers, however, this story is misleading. Even Stalin wasn't consistent in referring the, preferring the Russo-centric paradigm to the pan-Soviet one after May 1945. Still less did all the relevant political actors and propagandists jump into line behind Russo-centrism, even when Stalin appeared to favour it. Russians may have liked it, but communists who took their ideology seriously were likely to be disoriented and the non-Russian republics annoyed. The new party programme issued under Khrushchev in 1961 noted the emergence of a Soviet people with a common purpose, ideology, economic system and psychology. 
This Soviet identity was not, or at least not yet, a full replacement for particular national identities, Uzbek, Georgian, Krozik, and anything else, but a complement to them. During the drafting of the programme, suggestions that mention should be made of Russia's leadership role in the Union, especially during the Second World War, were voted down. Brunstead is largely a Moscow story, with Kazakhstan the only republic which whose discussions about Russian primacy are examined, though rather inconclusively. To find out how things worked in the republics, you have to go to Krista Goff's fascinating story of the Caucasus, the product of dauntingly difficult research in recalcitrant archives with oral history informants inclined to look anxiously over their shoulders. Refreshingly, this is not primarily a study of resistance to Moscow's dominance on the part of the region's three big republics, Georgia, Armenia and Azerbaijan, but rather of the assertion of dominance by the republic's own titular nationalities over their non-titular younger brothers. Of the Caucasus republics, Azerbaijan is the most egregious example of the Soviet intervention of tradition with regard to nationality, and Azerbaijanis were particularly ruthless in dealing with the public's lesser non-titular nationalities. This was despite, or perhaps because of, the exceptional fuzziness of their own national identity claims. Azerbaijani became the preferred term for a particular set of Turkic people of Islamic faith in the region only in the mid-1930s. Previously, our previous variants had included Turks, as distinct from Turks, Azerbaijani Turks, Muslims, Azerbaijani Tatars, Caucasus Tatars and Azeris. Whatever their name, this Turkic people had earlier been seen by historians as arriving in the region between the 11th and 13th centuries, but now it was discovered that they had ancient roots there. From 1933 onwards, the top political jobs in the Republic were always held by Azerbaijani. But lesser nationalities abounded. In pre-revolutionary schools in Azerbaijan, four language regimes were available. Russian, Russian-German, Russian-Tata, and Armenian. By the late 1920s, the number of defined nationalities, now including Turk as well as Greek and Persian, had grown to 10. And by 1933-34-14, including four new minorities, Talish, Lesgan, Kurdish and Uzbek. Claims for autonomous territorial status were also on the rise, although they were often unsuccessful. The Kurds wanted to have the status of autonomous region in Azerbaijan, as the Armenians had with the autonomous regime of Nagorno-Karabakh, allocated to Azerbaijan in 1921 after an earlier decision by Moscow to put it in Armenia, but never achieved it. In terms of status, Upgrades, it was often an advantage to have a neighbouring Soviet titular republic behind you, Armenia in case of the Armenians in Nagorno Karabakh, and it was a distinct disadvantage to have a large co-ethnic population outside the Soviet border, as was the case with the Kurds, numerous in Iran as well as Azerbaijan. The great purges of the late 1930s brought horrific bloodletting to Azerbaijan, but was implemented by... Amir Bagryov, the Republic's leader. They also served a nation-building function, putting strong pressure on national minorities to assimilate to the Azerbaijani identity. 
Legislation reducing instruction in minority languages emanating from Moscow in 1938 is generally seen as Russifying an intent. In Azerbaijan, however, the effect was that what Goff calls Azerbaijanifying. The impact in Georgia seems to have been similar with Abkhazia, an autonomous uh, republic within the Georgian Republic, being subject to strong pressures to Georgianize. Some national minorities suffered deportation as a group to other areas of the Soviet Union in the 1930s and 40s. This started in the border region with the cleansing of ethnic groups that might prove unreliable in time of war, especially Poles, Finns and in the Far East Koreans who might feel loyalty to another state. Volga Germans underwent a similar fate. The practice continued after the war with the deportation and resettlement of traitor nationalities, Chechens, English, Crimean Tatars and others, held to have collaborated with the Germans. The deportations are generally understood as Moscow initiatives, but the person largely responsible for executing them was Leventry Beria, who was a Georgian Republican leader before he was called to Moscow in 1938 to head the Soviet security police. Goff concludes that in general the local leadership played more of a role in the deportation and resettlement of minorities than is actually supposed. In his Georgian days, Beria evidently resettled tens of thousands of Georgians and in Abkhazia as part of the Georgianization effort. The Georgian leaders who succeeded him seem to have been deeply involved in the wartime expulsion of Kurds. Goff concludes that they, along with Beria, with his dual power base in Moscow and the Caucasus, share responsibility for these deportations with Stalin, who signed the expulsion orders as chairman of the Council of Ministers. Later, in a three-way deal between Moscow, Armenia and Azerbaijan, Azerbaijanis were resettled from Armenia to their titular republic, in theory voluntarily, but in practice often not. Uh, Azerbaijan was deeply involved in the Soviet-British occupation of Iran in 1941 with Bagarov playing a key role as the Republic's leader and Soviet operations in southern Iran or Iranian Azerbaijan became a school of patriotism for a whole generation of Soviet Azerbaijanis. After the war, large-scale repatriation of Armenians who had emigrated to the Middle East and Europe added to Armenia's prestige as well as its population. All in all, the war left the titular nationalities of the Caucasus republics stronger and more nationally assertive than before, and their minorities took the brunt. In the 1939 census, Azerbaijanis made up 58% of their republic's population. 20 years later, the figure had risen to 68%, and by 1970, it was 74 Resettlement and deportation played some part in this, as did a reduction in the Russian portion of the population, but the main cause seems to have been the assimilation of minorities into the titular nationality. This was achieved through various kinds of pressure. In 1939, there was almost 90,000 Talish in Azerbaijan, but within 20 years, they had virtually all disappeared. Information told Goff that in 1959, the census workers sat in the regional village office and filled in the national composition of the population ahead of time then told the householders what nationality they were expected to claim. 
The Talos were particularly disadvantaged by having no relationship to any titular nationality in the region, and when such relationships did exist, the Azerbaijanis did their best, with the help of compliant experts in the field of history and demography, to undermine them. One of Azerbaijan's minorities, the Georgian Ingolots, were discovered to be descended from Albanian tribes, which had been aggressively Georgianized in ancient times. Other Albanian tribes, it seemed, had been similarly pressured by Armenians, meaning that the so-called Armenians of Nagorno-Karabakh, subject of the running conflict between Armenia and Azerbaijan, were not Armenian at all, but, but also Azerbaijani historians insisted. One of the advantages of the union structure from the standpoint of minority nationalities was the Moscow constituted a possible court of appeal against repression by titular nationalities. Sometimes such appeals were forwarded back down through public for investigation, which essentially meant burying them. But in other cases, Moscow sent in its own man to investigate, responding to complaints of the Georgian Inkla in the 1980s, Moscow Emirati found that local Azerbaijan officials were at best indifferent to the group's dissatisfaction and at works rudely violated their legitimate interests. During Gorbachev's reforming period, which raised the possibility of remedying old abuses, the agitation of non-titulars increased. Not surprisingly, the vexed question of Nagora Karabash was back at the top of the agenda. With the collapse of the Soviet Union, Azerbaijan, Georgia and Armenia all became independent nations with governments of that often showed strong continuity of personnel with the Soviet predecessors. According to the official formula, there had been a friendship of nations in the Soviet Azerbaijan and now it was claimed that the bonds were even closer. Everybody lives like one family in Azerbaijan, the country's president said in 2011. This was Ibrahim Aliyev, son of the Azerbaijan's top communist official in the 1970s, who had himself become president when the republic gained independence in 1990. In fact, in Nagorno-Karabakh, as and elsewhere, conflict between titular and non-titular nationalities in the Caucasus was never fiercer than in the decades following the Soviet Union's end. Protests in Nagorno-Karabakh against Azerbaijani uh, leadership led to two wars between Armenian and Azerbaijani troops, the first in the early 1990s leading to Armenian gains, and the second in 2020 to an Azerbaijani uh, revanche culminating in another uneasy ceasefire. For some non-titular minorities in Azerbaijan, Goff concluded the big brothers that they represented or distrusted were representatives of Soviet Azerbaijan rather than Moscow. As the Soviet foundation started to shift under Gorbachev, all national claims tended to escalate towards demands for secession, even those of small nationalities which in earlier times have been satisfied with an autonomous region. Bronson does not bring the story up to the present, perhaps prudently, as there would be another whole book to be written about the different ways in which the post-Soviet states have incorporated the Second World War into their national histories. This appropriately dialectical, if not altogether satisfying, conclusion is that the Soviet regime's ongoing efforts to resolve the contradictions between a Russo-centric and pan-Soviet approach to the war lent a certain dynamism to the Soviet repertoire of rule and probably did, not much, did much to hold the unbreakable union together, even 
This logic contained the seeds of its own destruction. But the unbreakable union broke ethnic wars and conflicts had become endemic to the region. The new Russian Federation drew a line in the sand with regard to its own secessionist minorities. There were two wars with Chechnya in the 1990s. Ukraine has had trouble with its own largest minority, the Russians fighting independence attempts in its Russian-dominated eastern provinces. Belarus has trouble with its Poles. In Georgia, attempts at secession by Azerbaijan and South Ossetian minorities have led to violent clashes with countries' authorities, adding to the disarray caused by the continuing conflict over Nagorno-Karabakh. Perhaps the old Soviet setup had some advantages for minority nationalities. In any case, one thing seems sure. In the region that used to be the Soviet Union's, Russians are not the only people capable of repressive and imperialist behaviour. Right, well, uh, we will now have a bit of music to end the show. Um, And I wish you all a happy 2022.
support this show and others like it by giving a donation. For more information, go to www.mpr.nz forward slash donate.